Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Our guest for the episode is Marion Dunley. Marion Dunley is a Jungian analyst and head of training in Body Soul Europe, part of the Marion Woodman Foundation. She is a somatic experiencing trauma therapist based in the west of Ireland and is the creator of Body Dreaming. Marion, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Christopher. So uh, Body Dreaming, you created it. What is Body Dreaming and what motivated you to write a book about it? Oh, well, thank you, firstly, for inviting me. I'm delighted to have this uh, time to explore with you some of these questions. And um, that one always feels such a wide question. Um, So Body Dreaming... I like to think about it in terms of psyche. And when we go to sleep, we're in the land of the unconscious, we say. But we all know that there's also a somatic unconscious, what's held in the body as memory or symptom or story. Implicit memory we know a lot about now, and also explicit memory. But what I realized when I was doing my work, particularly with Marion Woodman, who brought me into a much more embodied experience of myself, um, I realized that the body itself goes on dreaming the dream. And how do we access that space is really part of the journey that I went on, how to make relationship to the somatic unconscious in a way that was informed by my analytic training and my Jungian training, And that journey brought me into um, sort of Gendelin's work and focusing, and in particular, Peter Levine's work on somatic experiencing. And that marriage of that somatic approach with Marion Woodman's approach, which was an embodied Jungian approach, and my experience of analytic psychotherapy, which was infant observation at its core for me, Um, All of that ensemble, as it were, created um, my particular brand of somatic work that I called body dreaming, which is really listening to the psyche in the body, being able to, as it were, attune to the body's unconscious. In a way, what's coming to my mind is um, the little prince and... the story of apprivoisement, where there's the taming that has to happen, the rose and the fox, and she has her rituals of how you approach the feminine, how you approach her. And she says to the fox, you've got to come at the same time every day, and you stand where I tell you to stand. And it's like then her whole demeanor can be more receptive to him, and day by day a trust is built. Well, in many ways, that's a lovely parallel to the body and that as we make relationship to the body, as we make relationship to the nervous system of the body and we attune ourselves to the other person, then the body becomes more amenable to being received and to revealing its treasures. Um, So yes, the body then goes on dreaming the dream in that sense, its own unconscious becomes more conscious for us. 
So let, from that, then, there's a, a passage in terms of attuning to each other um, in the chapter orienting, regulating, and resourcing um, on the client's chosen object. And you write, it almost invariably happens that the client's chosen object engages both therapist and client in a process of downregulation. What what is downregulation? What is that process? What happens? Okay. So that word is borrowed from, um, in particular, from the somatic experiencing um, language, if you like, or now we use it. Uh, it's particularly with COVID, we have a lot of experience of talking about being dysregulated and how we're dysregulated. And the regulation is like how we come into making relationship with the nervous system so that it is not in hyper mode where the sympathetic autonomic nervous system is firing and the heart rate is up and the sweat glands are going and its blood pressure is ready for action. Or in the opposite, where you have, it's in a hypo state where it's sort of chilled out and slightly dissociated or extremely frozen or gone into a state of collapse. I mean, they're the opposites that we talk about that happen out of a state of response. And that response can be minimal or it can be very, very large. And so the response can stay entrained in our nervous system, as it were, a pattern that we have. So we have come to have a default position of fight, flight, or freeze. And the regulation is our ability to come in as therapist to attune to what is what it is we're reading in the body of the other, what their nervous system is presenting, and then using skills to help to regulate. And the experience in the book that I'm referring to comes out of um, Steve Hoskinson's work, who is originally in somatic experiencing, and Steve has devised his own work now called Organic Intelligence. And he um, came into using an orienting uh, response, is what he calls it. So you take uh, a moment to move away from, this is a tool we use, so you invite the client to take a moment. Let's, let's just take a moment to pause here and see what it's like when we look around. Just let your eyes go for a wander. Don't push them into looking for something or searching for something. See what it's like to let the eyes take you for a wander. And you may notice that you've already stopped at something. Now just bring your consciousness to what has grabbed your attention. So something has caught your attention. And what's it like to follow that and just tell just describe to yourself exactly what it is you're looking at. Some of you may ne never have noticed this before. It may be a marking on the wall. It may be a particular image on your wall. Or it may be outside the window and the light on the tree has just caught you. Whatever it is, just tell yourself as you're listening to me now what it is your eyes have caught what have they chosen? And describe it to yourself. Just take a couple of moments to describe it, the physicality of it, like that branch, the way it's hanging, the weight of it, or the movement of it, or the, the play of light on it. Just enjoy it and describe it to yourself. And in that describing, 
Now take a moment and step back and see what's happened to your system. You may notice your whole body has had a response to it, if you tune into the body. You may notice that your breath has eased a little bit, that you're more relaxed, the light has come onto your face, perhaps, and you're enjoying that. Or there's something about the curiosity that has awakened something in you. And while you're doing it, I too have been doing it. So it's a participation. And we're then, in a way, in a kind of a unified field, something that's bigger than us and that's inviting conversation. And it has a profound effect on both our nervous systems. Just to draw a parallel, if I may, Christopher, here, with the mother and infant situation, regulation, what we know now is that the mother is the regulator for the infant for all those early months until that neocortex develops its capacity for regulating, which can take right up to about 18 months. And the mother's voice, and I use the mother, but it's the primary carer, whoever is the primary carer, has the capacity to regulate the nervous system through the tone of voice. Prosody is what we call that. It's like the music, the rhythm, the pacing. All of that has an immediate impact on the baby's nervous system and in fact contributes to creating the child's own capacity for fight, flight, and freeze. So it's like we're entraining the system with our own regulating as parent. And so in the same way, there's a parallel process happening in therapy when we consider that we are regulating the client's nervous system and that we have the capacity to do that when we ourselves are practiced with regulating our own nervous system. Well, that's, um, I have so many associations to that. Um, I'll try to follow um, one of them, the idea of, of looking and the, the stopping and looking. Um, in, and in, in the book, you, you ask the question, which is really beautiful, which is how would you describe the object that attracts your gaze um, and the active process of looking and sight and so I was wondering about the your thoughts on the traditional couch position in analysis where you're not looking at each other um, and how that uh, relates because certainly number of people when they uh, begin uh, therapy or analysis um, the idea of not looking at the therapist, at the analyst, is uh, really frightening to them. Um, and it's certainly not insisted upon. Um, but then something changes when they decide to, to take the couch. And one of the things that, um, in fact, surprised me the first time as a therapist that I was working with someone who took the couch. I'd been on the couch as a patient. I went, oh, we're both facing the same thing. 
we're both looking at the exact same thing. So have you given uh, any thought to facing the therapist, not facing the therapist, what the couch does, what it doesn't do? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's a great um, opener, really. And it is like a chapter could be written about that. Um, I like those words. We're both facing the same thing. I think that's very profound because from my experience of working with the orienting process that I've just described, um, I really feel the depth, the depth of that field of that shared field is really the depth of the collective unconscious that's working us both. And also what we would, what I refer to the union referred to as the unified field. And it brings to mind for me, Merleau-Ponty and phenomenology that it brings us into a very living relationship with psyche in the matter around us. So I, I'm I'm very struck by where you've ended it, but I want to go to the beginning of that conversation because, um, first of all, I trained in psychosynthesis, so that was facing the therapist, and then I went off and did a psychoanalytic training, and I was on the couch, and I I really and and worked as a, uh, an analyst using the couch and seeing people, you know, a few times a week, so I then went to um, a conference that we were, I had been uh, at some point in that time, I was training with Marion Woodman in California. And I went to a conference that was honoring her. And um, Alan Shore and Don Calshed were both there. And um, it was my first time coming across Alan Shore's work. And uh, I was absolutely fascinated because it was my, the first time really I knew any had any introduction to neuroscience and what might be happening in the brain of the infant and the brain of the mother in their interactions. So that was really energizing for me and so exciting uh, because it felt like I was now getting the information I needed to bridge Marion Woodman's embodied work with the psychoanalytic field that I was practicing out of. So I went home all excited Actually, what I went home to do was to reclaim looking at each other. So whilst I had been working with people on the couch and continued for a while with some, I was now really open to exploring this, what we would now call through Porges' work, the social engagement system. I didn't know about the social engagement system, but I heard Alan talk about the left eye and that the eyes, what what is communicated through them, and listen to his research in that. And I thought, my, I just felt in, impelled, really, or compelled, I should say, to uh, explore this further and to take the step of sitting face-to-face in that way. And I think, firstly, it's like, as you say, to sit somebody on the couch initially can be very highly dysregulating, and so then they need all the support to to find themselves comfortable there so they can trust that free association process and listen and attune to their inner world. Well, this was a new way of uh, regulating because I was now 
in the in the eye to eye or just a little bit off it but when the client would might want to choose to look at me they could see me without having to turn around and so we kind of played with position like that for a while and i felt there was something about learning for the for the client the experience of is it safe to be with myself with the other it's and almost, I don't know how to make this a judgment, because as I said, I could write a paper on this as an exploration, but sometimes in setting it up on the couch, the traditional couch, it's almost like I can only be with myself and the other can be there, and it sets up its own story. That's what I would say, that sets up its own story. But learning to be present to myself with the other, learning what comes in when the other person is there, the projections that I have on the therapist, um, the expectations, how do I support the client to drop into their own experience in the presence of the witnessing other who's actually witnessing visually, they can see and feel the presence of the other. So it's an interesting uh, piece because I think it's coming up with the pandemic as well, in that Nowadays, so many people are working with Zoom. And one of the things I like to do is to say to people, especially when they're new people, uh, but new to Zoom as well, it's like, okay, I'm just going to invite you to be with yourself for the starters. Just look around your room, get a real sense of you're at home in your space. And again, it may be a little bit of noticing what's there. Tell me about it see what catches your attention, getting a little bit of regulation, but actually really just letting the person feel they're in a three-dimensional space and that the lens is there as well. There is a camera lens and there is a presence, but it's not everything. I don't have to be paralyzed in front of it or answerable to it. I can take my reference away from it and I can look out the window and I can come back to it. And negotiating that as a felt sense experience is really a rich experience. And like everything else, of course, it's going to reveal uh, a lot in the transference as well. Um, but it's a very rich experience for us to become more attuned to ourselves. And I think it's so interesting that it's the social engagement, we call it, the eye contact uh, those muscles of the head, neck, and face that can calm the heart is what Porges would say. That just brings in a lovely ventral soothing. Um, and we also know the opposite can happen. It can trigger an activation and, and a heightened state of arousal to be under the scrutiny of the eyes. And that's why the couch is so helpful for some people because they don't feel that. But whichever way. I think the key is about the regulation and bringing our attunement back to ourselves in the presence of other. Whether it's mother as regulator or therapist as regulator, but there's a kind of an inner attunement and an awareness of other. I don't know how that sounds. No, I, I mean, it, it, uh, it, it aligns with what my own experiences and and having people who um for whom the couch is much more calming um 
and of course there's those who aren't. Um, I have someone who is, uh, can speak, but is functionally deaf. So f- the face is important. My speaking is, is, is liberating. So there's that. Um, one of the things that I became aware of with regulation and being able to see is, um, respiratory because on the couch I can watch, um, or be called attention to, I don't look at it. I can call attention to the, the change in breathing and the rising and falling. Um, and I can tune into that easier, but let's, I want to, there's a, uh, a phrase you use in the book that I think can help us talk about dysregulation, um, which is, uh, the window of tolerance and, and what is that? And what happens when a patient goes out of it? How do you bring them back in? What is the window of tolerance? So it's a phrase that Pat Ogden and Dan Siegel used and obviously continue to use. And um, it's if you imagine um, a window and it's got a frame and the frame is set, so um, that's the window, as it were, the shape of the window. That's the extent to which the light can come into this room. It comes in through that particular frame. And so it's the frame, they would say, it's our capacity to tolerate certain experiences. So we're above that frame or below that frame. We're outside our, our capacity for tolerance. So we're activated, they would say. So within that frame, I feel comfortable with this much laughter. I feel comfortable with this much joy. I feel comfortable with this much sadness or this much anger. But if you bring, if you heighten any of those emotions, then I'm uncomfortable. I go beyond my window of tolerance. And on the upper level of the window, I go into hyperactivity, as I described earlier. So the heart rate will go up and the blood pressure will be pumping and I might have sweaty hands and I'm having a sympathetic arousal as it were and if I go below that threshold I may have a a propensity for more for freeze or collapse or immobility response then we talk about that as the lower frame of the window I've gone down into a hypo state and so my my tolerance levels or they come when we come into analysis, for instance, we come in with a certain size window. And what we're all the time doing as therapists is we're expanding our capacity, my capacity for feeling, for experience, for relationship. And each time we do that, we're imagining that that window is growing a little bit. And one of the things I was really struck by when I was working with window tolerance is we often think about it in relation to what we might name as negative emotions. But actually, so many people are also have a particular capacity for joy. They're afraid to be joyful. It's unsafe. Uh, that triggers their response, whether they, it might put them into hyper or hypo, depending on the, how their uh, nervous system what the default position of the nervous system, of the particular nervous system is. But it's very interesting that, um, you know, you can, you may think you have a really wonderful session and there's a greater sense of uh, what we've got somewhere. 
and then it can flip when the person goes outside the door. It's almost like it's not, I can't tolerate that yet. I haven't got the capacity to hold that experience yet. Um, and it may be on the nervous system level, it just may be too much for the nervous system right now. So again, that's uh, one of the ways of working with that is um, Levine's uses the word titration. So we don't overload the person with an experience because if we do, then we already have just aroused or activated is the word we use. We've just activated their default position. Instead, when an experience is presenting itself, we work towards regulation and then we come out from the regulation a little bit and we titrate, we just take a drop of that new or traumatic experience and we bring it into consciousness and we see how the body, we ask the client to notice what happens when we talk about that. We just see what their capacity is to be present to that emotion, what's happening in their body. And we support them to be present to that. We support them saying, okay, well, maybe let's take a moment to regulate again. Let's take a moment to look out and see what's happening outside. Or we may ask them to look inside. We may say, okay, so you can feel your throat getting really dry as we're talking about that. See if, how are your feet doing? What do you notice about your feet right now? We may bring them to a sense there is something else in the body and then the word that Levine uses is you pendulate you pendulate between where the feet are feeling really grounded and then to where oh when I think of that image I really tighten my shoulders stiffen we'll just stay with it for a little bit and notice what happens as you stay there and inevitably energy shifts and it may shift a little bit with greater window tolerance expansion may happen or they may get a little bit activated again and we think okay let's go back now it's titrated we'll just go back to the feet again and that becomes a dance you move between activation and deactivation which increases our capacity the window of tolerance expands and uh, one of the things is is that movement and flow is always healthy, as it were, where there's been a rigidity or a contraction. And uh, that's, it's lovely to have that in the system, to really feel I'm going to go back to the, our natural capacity for that homeostasis, which isn't um, a fixed, rigid balance. It's more a dynamic equilibrium we'd say i love the um quotation from marion woodman that she it's for t.s Eliot, but she always quoted it for us and brought it in right at the beginning of a workshop she would use the words except for the point the still point there would be no dance and there is only the dance So many uh, thoughts when you're talking about um, the window of tolerance and generally assumed what we call negative feelings. Um, one of the um, 
analysts that I work with had a wonderful observation. Um, he would say, aggression is easy. Intimacy is hard. Um, and and uh, he said that in the context of a group, that frequently members of a group um, would want to leave. I'm, it's my last day of group because what, what they were being asked to tolerate was more intimacy. They were fine to come and, you know, argue with each other. Um, homeostasis, which um, you write a lot about in the book, um, and there was, um, with uh, the, there's a, a section of it where you're talking about um, measure, uh, no longer be in measure, uh, but out of alignment with the natural order or natural law of measure. And that really struck me because frequently people will start treatment and I mean, a, a great number of people will say, well, I'm told that I'm too much, too much. I'm too needy. Um, that's a big one. I'm too intellectual. My friends say I'm too defended. They bring in, you know, I concepts. And I frequently say, well, what's, what's the measure? What's the appropriate amount of need, feeling, intellect? Um, and they don't have any idea. They don't have any idea what their own measure is. Somehow they've got the idea that whatever their response to the world is, is too, is out of balance. So um, how are you using measure in body dreaming? I think it, that question really, for me, follows on that discussion we've just been, I've been elaborating there on the titration. Um, measure can be, uh, in a sense, uh, it can come from a place of rigidity, which is not what I'm talking about. So it's a certain measure. But it's something about that, the capacity to move between, st between the opposites in a way. Um, I, Brigitte Egger was actually lectured in Zurich. I went to Zurich for a few years when I took time out to really do the research for the book, having had a lot of experience of workshops and teaching and individual work. I really felt I needed time to reflect on the work I had been doing and to write it up. And uh, Brigitte Egger was... Um, lecturing in Zurich. She's at ISAP and uh, the Jungian School and the International School of Jungian Studies. And uh, she was talking about um, a kind of an ecological approach um, to our world and to psychology as part of that world and to Jung and was talking about how in the animal kingdom things are always in measure, that the amount of food that is eaten um, the kill is always proportion to what's necessary. And that somehow we have, I, I liked that thing, that we have come out of measure. We're no longer in tune with ourselves. We're, whether it's our materiality has gone way out or that we have lost our connection with, and because we have lost the connection with soul, that there's somehow 
um, that great um, incapacity again to attune to what is what is me, who am I and what is me and what is appropriate for us right now. I mean, I think one of the great uh, regulating forces of this last year has been COVID. Uh, you could also say it's opposite. It's true. It's massively dysregulating. But it has brought many people into a place of measure. What they need is very different to what they thought they needed. And to come to a kind of an inner attunement that brings us some sense of connectedness. So if I go back to what I said right at the beginning, when we did that orienting piece, it brings me into relationship both with my own nervous system. I realize I've calmed down as I've been looking at the branch outside. But I also realize that the branch outside is alive and dynamic and affecting me. So I'm no longer, as it were, conquering or bigger than that. It's not an object. I'm in relationship to it. And we haven't done it in so far here, but if I'm working with that and I get the person to describe the object outside, it's quite astounding how the psyche will speak through that object exactly the words that are needed as a kind of a compensation for what's lacking on the inside. It's like a measure for measure. What is needed and what is the symptom that's being presented is suddenly met by and in measure to symptom by what's on the outside. The words of the experience, the very particular words will come in and be beautifully um, compensatory for the presenting symptom very often. I'm not saying, I can't make, you can't make a rule out of it, but um, I was working with a group of analysts in Zurich and uh, they were very experienced people. And, um, you know, we were all white-headed at that stage. And uh, I was introducing this work to them and it was a small group and they'd never worked explicitly in this way with the body before. They, none of them knew the neuroscience language. This was a good number of years ago now, so it was all quite new. And when we started working with this, and we were working in the basement in the Kellerraum at uh, the Psychological Club, which was founded by Jung, and we were in this basement room without much, with no daylight at all, but there were some paintings on the wall. And every week, when we would work in this way uh, and people would orient very often to the paintings and what was seen and what was explored in those orienting moments with the paintings had profound impact on what we'd say the dreamer, the analyst who was speaking her dream at that moment or who was coming up with an activation in response if we were doing supervision. She may have been presenting uh, a client's material and her own particular activation around that. When we would look outside and see what was in the space, whether it was the particular angle of a rose in the vase and how it, 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 the shape of the rose, I remember distinctly, the angle at which the rose leaned in the vase was just a mirror image for 
the infant that she was experiencing in herself at that moment in relation to the mother and the hunger and longing for that connection with mother being beautifully amplified by the image on the outside and the words of it um, matching exquisitely. So there's a kind of a measure in working with the unconscious, I feel, when it's there's an attunement to the body. I think the body regulates and guides because we can see when it's dysregulated, when it's out of measure, it tells us it's too activated. So then we have to come back and slow down and attune to it. That's very helpful to think about Gendelin's work there and um, the sensing body. That, that sensing body is not just about how the body what the uh, the tracking of the body as a physical thing it includes that but it's the intelligence that comes to us through that attunement it opens a very profound field which is both inner and outer connects both yeah i think that for me the um the and look, it's we're we're able to, in a sense, work, be talk therapists over Zoom or over the phone um, in COVID, so we can do our work. However, I feel a great loss. To me, it's quite significant. Two bodies agreeing to share a space which is dedicated for the work, the office. Um, it's. Um, Peter Brook writes in The Empty Space, members of the same species being in the same room, having this experience together. Um, I really miss, I miss taking my body to an office. Um, I've, and I've had clients say that they miss coming into that, you know, you wouldn't say that you would necessarily miss a commute, certainly not in New York City, but there was, but, you know, changing neighborhood, because you change what you see visually um, and, 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 New York City neighborhoods are so specific. Um, it's uh, I think it's a loss that we are not, our bodies are not in the same room. I think it's a huge, huge loss. At least it is for me. Um, what is... Can I, can I come ahead. in on that one? Because sure, yeah. um, I really get that, you know. Um, yeah, the environment and... When I was doing my analysis, at one point, one of my analyses, I had to drive outside Dublin into Wicklow. And the drive, my God, I was a different person. Talk about regulation. I was already a different person when I arrived than I was the person who left the house. I would, my, oh, the nature was just so beautiful. And I was expanded into that openness and more receptive having arrived there. So I really know about that and then the detail of the analyst space. But I want to just say that for me, what's been extraordinary in working with Zoom and with groups and with individuals, but I, I, it wasn't a surprise with, with individuals because I've been working for years now um, on you know the internet one-on-one, -on -one. but to take a group and to bring this attention to the body, to the group, and to trust that the collective in the group is having this experience of their, it's a collective experience of presence to the body, but it's a presence to the individual body. And yet that collective 
is um, really um, very, very powerful as a container and expanding the capacity, like we said earlier. So people moving into new experiences, regulating in that, in that collective space that is measured and that hopefully is regulating the other. Um, it's been an extremely profound experience for me. I've run three sequences of um, workshops now on Zoom, co-facilitated, uh, working imaginatively, but with always with an embodied presence. Um, and um, I've been astounded, really, by how consciousness um, travels through and crosses the airwaves and where we arrive at at the end of the session is absolutely profound and uh, is something to you know it, it's it, it's very humbling because it's it's like we're we join with something that's happening and of course we have manufactured it and worked it we'll do 10 minutes of that and 12 minutes of that but with that intention of holding attunement, I'm, I've really been very, very uh, struck by and impressed by the capacity for embodied soul through the internet. The, um, I'm glad you mentioned uh, a container or the space in that because it um, brings me to hopefully tie together uh, some different things in the book. You have two metaphors, um, the ancient cairn at Newgrange, and then you, you write uh, the black pearl as metaphor for body dreaming. So a two-part question, what are those two metaphors? And then how does metaphor deal with uh, linking the hemispheres in the brain? Right. Well, um, I think um, so. Metaphor is um, just such a beautiful way of immediately lighting up brain centers. More brain centers respond to metaphor than to anything else. Um, it's like language and image and emotion and body all in one. It hits all of those chords, as it were. Uh, the it's while I was in Zurich that um, I got the notion of bringing in Newgrange. Now, I'd been going to Newgrange and to other me megalithic sites uh, along those cross-quarter days, which would be this 21st of June, 21st of December, and then we would have the equinox um, days for... September and March. I would also take in the days which were the Celtic calendar, which is Imbolc, the beginning of spring, and then we have uh, Bialtna, beginning of summer, May, and Lunasa and Samhain. So these are all really important times in the calendar, and our landscape reflects that in its um, in the architecture of these megalithic sites. 
And I've um, always, not always, but as an adult, been uh, particularly interested in going to these sites. And I've gone both on my own and with people and workshops there as well. And it's like accessing the energy and what happens when we go there. What are we receiving from them? And how are they impacting us? And one of the words that really came to me uh, is the word alignment. That really with regulation, we're realigning ourselves. We're trying to bring in that dynamic equilibrium or that sense of coherence back into our system. And I just had that moment of recall of being in Newgrange which is a megalithic tomb and it's they say older than the pyramids older than 5,000 years and it's the entrance to the tomb is built in alignment with the winter solstice so the sunrise on the 21st of June and a couple of days before and after comes down the passageway of the tomb and over a period of 10 minutes, climbs up that passageway into the center of the mound. It's a big mound. A cairn is uh, the word we use, a, a pile of stones. And this is a beautiful central chamber with a very high corbel ceiling. And that experience of waiting for the light to come in every year, and it comes in through a roof box above the door. So it's purposeful it's with intention the architects created this in 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 alignment and this moment is very profound to experience standing in the darkness and waiting for the light and for me it is like light coming into matter something from the earth something we would say the feminine um, experience of earth and then it's impregnated by the sun, that we might say the masculine energy, but spirit and matter, that for me, them the coming together of that in the time of greatest darkness, which brings in hope and also fertilizes, as it were, as an image um, and bringing the positivity and the forward-looking aspect, as it were, of this marriage that's happening. Uh, this was very, very profound as a metaphor for me. And um, I really could see that this is what is happening all the time with clients, is when we're he- finding ourselves in a place where I can feel that window has opened, I can receive the image of the dream in a way that no longer dysregulates me, but actually is bringing in a great sense of a harmonic or a resonance at a very deep, coherent level. So my heart and my mind are more open and they're co-joined. And I'm also at the same time in relation to the analyst in the room, but to everything around me. There's that sense of coherence. Um, so, yeah, I weave in the metaphor of Newgrange throughout the whole book. But I didn't want to put a picture of Newgrange on the cover of the book because, you know, coming from Ireland, Newgrange is a real tourist attraction. So it would be just like a tourist book. And that didn't feel right. 
And so I wondered, what will I use for image on the book? And uh, I have a dear friend uh, who's a, an artist, Dorothy Cross. And uh, Dorothy said, you must have something beautiful for your work. This book must have a beautiful image. And um, one day uh, she said, let's have a look at um, that, the book of symbols, the Arras collection. And uh, it's a beautiful book of images. And we came across the pearl. And just immediately, it's like that alignment moment. We read the text, but even just getting the image of the pearl and knowing, my gosh, a pearl that's formed in the darkness and it's formed from an irritant, you know, a grain of sand that's in there. And then it, the, it produces the whole action of the produces the knacker which becomes that beautiful pearl but it's out of it's the irritant and it's the work then the continuity of the work that produces the pearl as it's rubbed and uh, yeah they and i like that that it's the the symptom as it were the irritant that in working with that and again in measure in regulating attunement that that irritant can become the pearl and it's the pearl of great price it's like what is most important for us who we are our goal we might say so uh dorothy and i um were both very excited by that and she said now you're going to have to find a pearl shop and i'll come and photograph you and uh, I was in London, and uh, there's a beautiful arcade, the Burlington Arcade, down in uh, just opposite Green Park there, and opposite the Ritz, and there's a man with a top hat at the beginning of the arcade, and something just very Dickensian, something drew me in, and I went down, and down there in this little carade window, there were all these pearls, and I went in, and um, boldly... You know, when we're, again, aligned, I just spoke, I'm writing this book, this is what the book is about. And I said, and I have a friend who's an international artist, she shows up at Tate, who's, you know, and she would like to come and photograph me. This woman said, absolutely, absolutely. And um, so that's the story of the pearl as it appears in the cover of my book. And Newgrange that weaves its thread all the way through the book. So that takes me to, um, so the metaphor lighting up all sections of the brain, there was um, uh, something I'd uh, like you to talk a little bit about. Um, uh, You write, cognitive understanding can have a calming effect on the limbic arousal and strength and collaboration. And that struck me because, I don't know if this was true for you, but uh, in my analytic training and certainly in a lot of the the writing, um, there's almost a prohibition on cognitive understanding. Don't explain things. Don't give, don't, don't psychoeducate a real, um, a a taboo on cognitive understanding. And here you are writing that it is not only uh, calming for the limbic system, but that it strengthens collaboration. Um, so can you tell me how that works? 
Yeah, and like you, you know, Christopher, in the beginning, I was really quite shocked when I was in my somatic experiencing. And Rajah Slevin was my uh, teacher at the time. And he would explain, and I'm thinking, God, that's really interesting. And then he began to talk about, you know, the neuroscience of it and how calming it is and how it gives, again, it's, it's creating the window, you know, it's creating the frame in which we're going to look at this and this is why we look at something. So what it is, is, you know, it's the motivational system, in fact, is what's triggered. And motivation, well, that's half the job. If you get somebody motivated, they're already in the willingness and the wanting to come forward. So um, I was, I was very struck by that, and I used it um, initially like an experiment, like I was breaking the rules, you know. And then I found no, it's actually very empowering for people, and it takes something away from the transference. It's not like I'm a guru or I'm a magician. This is your brain and this is how your brain works. And this is why you need to practice orienting. This is why you need to practice self-regulation because every time you go into an limbic overdrive, you are just flooding yourself with cortisol and adrenaline and God help us your poor neocortex, your rational brain isn't getting a chance. But if we can support you to really calm and soothe and settle that limbic brain, let's see what else happens. And some of that, you know, you mentioned metaphor earlier, some of that is like, let's go for, you know, it might be good to put some of that on paper. It might be good to have a creative response to it, associative thinking, or to actually move it or to see how, what shape it takes if you put that energy onto the page, what's the color of it. It's like you bring in that right hemisphere as a way of calming. Or you go directly then, like you say, for the explanation. And I remember I had somebody who had suffered a huge tragedy, and she came to me after two years post-tragedy. And it was very public what was happening. And she felt really... Um, quite persecuted by the public eye and um, had spent a very difficult two years and looked like she was hounded, you know, she her rabbit eyes, huge big eyes looking at me. So she talked and talked and talked and everything she said was so important and if I was in my old, an old analytic hat, I would have just let her go and we would have had, it would have been a nice meeting. But I looked at the clock and I thought, okay, I'm going to practice this. So I said, do you mind if I say something? And she said, no. And I said, I just want to say that I, I can see what you're, what's happened and I'm feeling and I empathized with her. And I said, and there is something I could offer. And I said, because, and I talked a little bit about the brain and the limbic overwhelm and the emotional brain is really flooded at the moment. And how can she bring in a little bit of calm? And I actually drew the triune brain image on a page for her to let her see it. So she, it was really practical and visual. And I said, you know, if we can bring in something that can just calm that for you. So I asked, I invited her 
to. Um, I hadn't actually studied the orienting approach at that point, so I, I was coming out of Peter Levine's thing about think of a resource, something positive. So I said, is there anything, anything you like to do at home, anything, any place that you like to be? She said, yeah, I like to sit and look out my window at the sea. And I said, well, just bring yourself there now, see what happens. She sat quietly for a moment. Which there had, she had not taken a breath, I can tell you. Sat quietly for a moment. And I sat with her. And after a moment, she said, this is the first breath I've taken in two years. It was very profound, for both for her and this woman had been hounded, television, cameras, the whole thing, and she had to go on the TV about six months later. She, she chose to do that and I didn't see her. She was, it was not where I was living at the time, not in my country, but a couple of years later I heard about this TV thing and I saw her. And the woman's eyes were settled. They weren't racing. Her demeanor was contained. She'd, we'd worked together. We worked together and worked together. And the practice of choosing when she was overwhelmed to pause and to take the time to orient towards pleasure. It's one of the things I talk a lot about in the book is that piece of the pleasure. What gives us pleasure? And that, that that has a great capacity to bring in our coherence, a sense of coherence and alignment, like the new Grange image in our bodies and psyches. What is meant in the book uh, by this idea, accessing the incomplete gesture is the key to body dreaming. That is, um, so Peter Levine says that when trauma hits, it often interrupts something. It interrupts. So, um, yeah, very simple. Um, a memory I had this summer, I cracked and I, I broke my ankle. I was reaching for a Frisbee and my uh, foot got stuck in the ground. There was a little hole in the ground. It was on even, uneven ground. And so the upper body turned, but my foot failed to turn. It was locked and it snapped. So very simply, and this is a concrete example, the body is holding a memory there. It needs to complete the action. There's a turn. The whole body needs to complete the turn to move not just my foot, because if my foot moved, the whole upper body would move on that axis. And that in completing that action, I would bring huge uh, shift in the nervous system. I would bring uh, like an exhale, you know, everything would relax again. And until that comes in, the body is continually in a way attempting to complete that. And I've given a very concrete example, but that's happening at psychological levels and it's happening 
at physiological levels, the memory, particularly implicit memory. So what we know now about trauma is that it lands in the implicit memory. We can't, we don't have recall of time and episodic memory. This happened, then this, and then that. It's much more um, sporadic or spotted than that. And when we work somatically, we're really bringing regulation in again, homeostasis, or we're looking at where the disturbance is, and we're inviting the body to come forward with something, an incomplete gesture. And how do I invite it? I watch and see, is there a repetition? Is there some gesture that's being repeated and repeated and repeated in the narrative? And if I bring enough coherence into the system, I can ask the individual to slow down and maybe just just see what happens when you do that with your hand. I'm noticing that your hand is moving up and down and your palm is outward. Now just see, if you really slow that down, what happens? Just notice what happens. You may even want to think about where does the gesture begin? It may not be beginning at all in your hand. It may be way behind the shoulder, right in those wings there, in your back. See where it is. Just notice it. And again, I might regulate because even drawing attention to it might bring, you know, a tightening in the breath or something. But in that, slowly that there's something that comes when the body is able to just give us what's there. It may bring that that hand wants to stretch out and push something away, something that was encroaching psychologically or physically on them, that there was a no, there's an absolute prohibition in that hand that wants to just say no. Now that may never come verbally, but the gesture becomes strong and strong and you say, what's, what's that hand saying? It's saying no. And then the, the narrative from the past may come forward. Implicit memory may suddenly be reveal a story or not. We're not always interested in the story, but it may come forward. But what comes forward is the capacity. I have the capacity to say no. And that was the trauma robbed me of that. It inhibited that response and cut it short. It's like there was a foreclosure before it was time and it wasn't complete. And now that I'm this age, I can say no. I know how to stretch that hand that says no. And I can feel my whole body realign with that no. My spine, my shoulders, my breath, my feet on the ground, everything will come into a new alignment with that gesture that's been allowed to complete. I find that very powerful to work with and to keep in mind as I'm working. So we've come to the end of this window for now. What are you working on right now? What's next? That's a great question. And I'm not sure really. I think I'm still incubating. Um, I think... I'm very interested in what's happening with what the responses to the COVID and how that's affecting us at a body-soul level. Um, so that's where 
I'm sort of interested really at the moment and I'm very interested in teaching the work to therapists and spreading the news how informative our bodies are and how working with our bodies brings in such an alignment. So teaching really and writing, I imagine. Good. Um, we've been talking with uh, Marion Dunley about her book, Body Dreaming in the Treatment of Developmental Trauma, an Embodied Therapeutic Approach, uh, published 2019 by Rutledge. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Christopher.